0: Today, we finally dive into the story of your life by Ted Chang, which provided the source material to create the movie Arrival.
1: It's my life.
0: I'll talk to aliens if I want to. <laughs> want to.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Coming up on the Codex Cantina. <laughs> uh,
0: welcome to the Codex Cantina, where I am Una.
1: And I am Your Life Crypto.
0: If you are new to our channel, we heavily go into detail on the books that we read. We typically have a lot of literature discussions and interpretations. If you are down for something like that, please consider hitting the subscribe button.
1: And as always, we start off with publication information. The story of your life was published in November of 1998 in the Starlight 2 magazine.
0: It won the 2000 Nebula Award for Best Novella, as well as the 1999 Theodore Sturgeon Award. It is a science fiction novella by Ted Chang. Now, in terms of themes, we're going to be talking about language development, acquisition, and behavior, hints of cultural understanding, determinism, and free will. Basically, all of my favorite themes all wrapped up into one book. There's not a question in this world that I would love this movie and book.
1: So this book's very shallow, nothing too deep to talk about today. <laughs> oh, so
0: so did you know that I had applied to get my PhD in cognitive science? I think that may have come up in our memory police discussion. Obviously, I knew a little bit about the brain and language at that point in time. Language acquisition is is just a huge passion for me, which I ultimately turned down after going through all the efforts, taking all the tests and getting oh, accepted.
1: That's yeah, we have kind of talked about that before. No, I think language is hugely important. It's crazy that it's used so well in this story because when I talk with my students about language and we try to say, we talk about the history of it, of how do we develop language? It could be argued as one of our greatest invention ever because it's one of the few things mm-hmm. that Usually it's always something technology driven because it's a, the more modern mm. you are, the more influential you think it is. Like they always pick light bulb, electricity, uh, gas powered cars or Internet. But I, I think that you can make an argument that language is the most defining invention creation of human beings. I
0: think Ted Chang is an incredibly intelligent author obviously very well researched and i will go through several points today bringing out from a literary aspect what he was able to tie together with the story to some of the actual science behind it i think this is actually just a very interesting piece and i think sometimes i've read this actually this whole collection the stories of your life like all 10 stories uh, his characters tend to be vessels for delivering plot and delivering themes But overall, I do enjoy his work, but his prose pulls me down a little bit in terms of of how I like, which is a personal preference.
1: Indeed, which is kind of crazy to think about, too, because in the movie Arrival, based on this story, some of the performances in there are magnanimous. And it's just it's no wonder that that movie did so well.
0: Yeah, they changed things around. Actually, I think for the better in some regards, I actually was able to boil this plot down to 10 statements. You Ready? I'm ready. So we jump around a bit in time. But basically, a linguist raises a daughter, aliens land on Earth, and she's brought to learn their language. Their language appears to unlock seeing everything, including time, all at once. Even with complete knowledge of everything, we're left with a question, would you change what you did or what you will do? Did you ever have a choice at what to do? And through these flashbacks, we see how the little girl was raised, and the mother knowing all along that she would die young at the age of 25. The mother moved forward with enacting chronology and having the daughter anyways knowing the fate she'd have to face.
1: My friend... Faulkner would be impressed by your run-on sentences. <laughs> <laughs> there were
0: periods in there, kind of. <laughs> Barely, you didn't take a breath. You just talked for two minutes without breathing. <laughs> that's That's the curse of this channel, okay? So let's get into the actual fun part of analysis with this, right? So the name, the story of your life, Arrival. I like both of these. Arrival, both meaning the arrival of the aliens, the arrival of the young girl into her life. I think there's some nice sentimentality behind those decisions
1: yeah the beginning of this story really just knocks it out of the park i really love the opening quotes of the story yeah
0: it's interesting too because you have to be a good reader and you have to be paying attention the opening quote is your father is about to ask me the question this is the most important moment in our lives dot 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 right now your dad and i have been married for about two years And that right there, you should be paying attention to the, what is this narration of we have been married for, right now, we have been married for two years. What is this? This narration should be sending off red bells that the the tense is all over the place in terms of what it's trying to convey.
1: This is all over. You really have to be cognizant of what uh, Chang is talking about here. So moving
0: into language, why did Luis suddenly see all time? How could she see the past, present, and future? And I, I think the question—I I think, I think people misconstrue this. This is not a time travel
1: discussion. Agreed. I think that when she gets the HepaPod B, the written language of the aliens, is it's more like time viewing. And this is something kind of Einstein theorized about that time travel is probably impossible. Uh, you can't def- de- you know? You can't say that it is or isn't, but. Uh right. time viewing is probably something that we could look into the past or maybe into the future.
0: Do you know what linguistic relativity is?
1: So this is and I'm very, very basic on it, is where you define yourself based on the language that you speak.
0: So so you're you're talking more of the I don't know how to pronounce it but like that sapworf linguistics which has yeah. kind of been it's kind of been eschewed for the most part today but that's it's a, debunked, yeah it's a subsection of of linguistic relativity which is the idea that but both language and thoughts influence each other not one more so than the other we don't know but we know that there's a play between these two the idea being when you have a thought are you thinking words? Are, is your mind thinking a language? I, I read a book a long time ago, Steven Pinker's "The The Learning, the the Language Instinct," and uh, after that was uh, a book by Kloffman, uh, I think I, I forget the name now. But these are cognitive science that kind of studied how do we proposed, how do we learn, and how do we speak our mind and our language? How, how do these come together, if you will? And there's a lot of interesting theories out there, but no one can provide an answer to you. But a lot of people know there's a mental language and then there's the actual structured language that you think or articulate in, and they're not the same thing. And uh, there's a little bit of misrepresentation that when, when he's talking about thinking in specific languages. But other than that, a lot of these linguistical research things that he's done, incredibly
1: accurate. Yeah, he spent, I think they said uh, in an interview with him that it was something like five years he researched linguistics before he started writing this piece. And I know that if you think about it, one of the easy ways to kind of understand, I think what Una is trying to say is think of how you feel about your significant other, or think about how you feel of your children. And then you will associate a word with that by default because it's the only way you can describe love. But love is, is we could call it anything, right? We could change love and hate. Those words are just words, but they're used to describe a feeling. Do you have the feeling without the word love? Of course you do. Yeah.
0: So let's go through a few of these because I... I there's a whole bunch in here that we could just get lost on all day. But um they have the quote, the only way to learn an unknown language is to interact with a native speaker. And by that, I mean asking questions, holding a conversation, that sort of thing. Not interesting wordplay, not a plot device for her to talk to the aliens. Real life, between, particularly between the ages of zero and two, they... Kids don't learn language from TV. That's completely false. There's no scientific evidence that shows that as far as that I'm aware. You're welcome to provide something that I'll probably figure out how to debunk. But, but the reality is, is that these toddlers learn the basic core parts of language only through interaction with you as an adult. You put them into a room and have them stare at the TV, they're not going to learn language the way if you were to take a kid, lock them in a room with a parent for two years, that kid's going to develop just fine compared to the other one. That's just a scientific proven fact. Now, three to five, you know, beyond that, you can learn things. But the core tenets of how you communicate and learn to structure things comes from interacting with a native speaker.
1: And I think one thing to add to there is that a lot of times that development also involves the physical uh, ticks that you have, your facial cues as well when you're talking to a little baby. And also, I think the physical touch can make a determinant as well, because we do feel vibrations and that can be absorbed also. So, And they
0: explore that in this short story novel novella where they say that they have to see them they have to see how the characters you know po- they, they talk about how the heptopod pointed and that was a big clue for what their meanings were and you'll notice too that they can't reproduce the flutter sounds that the heptapods are able to this is actually another really interesting thing that babies particularly the first couple months of their life can hear all of the different sounds that that humans can produce, okay? So there are sounds that do not exist in English that you and I speak as a native speaker that exist in other languages, right? Specific sounds that human beings can make. Our ears, as English speakers who never practice that language, lose the ability to really distinguish those sounds after a critical learning age. And as we grow up, we start to focus on what our native languages are in terms of the sounds that we make that support that. So you'll notice that when you learn language, particularly past a critical learning age, as a, as a you know second language it can be much more difficult because you have to retrain your brain to listen to specific sounds much in the same way that these heptopods were able to produce sounds that the human brain wasn't attuned to hearing
1: one thing that we do when we grow up is we become uh, specialists about specific sounds to give us cues of what is about to come and one thing that we do a lot is we do ums and uhs or we latch on to key words and those allow us to be able to formulate our thoughts and your brain then will start filling in before you even have to think about it. It also happens in written language as well of that. You can actually read without the vowels because your brain will automatically fill them in.
0: Yeah. The mind is a very fascinating thing. Now, something else that's explored heavily in this piece is writing. there's still more to explore there. I don't, don't think we've done anything but scratch the surface in that area. Now, in terms of writing, writing is another big piece of this And there's this quote, as far as we can tell, they don't use pixels or scan lines and they don't refresh on a frame by frame basis. And we learn later how their language is a full complete and whole at once. It's not word by word or phoning by phoning the way that our uh, language is written. What did you think about, you know, if you saw the movie, how they have like those, that circular way of writing the way it was represented on the screen. What did you think about that?
1: I feel like this is the is the scientific-y, supernatural, sci-fi stuff kind of coming in element in here. But obviously, I think it's supposed to be represented of the circular idea of time and that we see it as, you know, linear. And because the language, our language is linear, that's how we see time. But for the heptapods, because their language is circular, they're able to view time as circular as well.
0: It's fascinating to me. I, I like how they, they initially, their first instinct was logographic in terms of representing a specific, uh, a symbol represents a, a meaning of some sort. I have a lot of connection to that from a kanji perspective. It was actually, that was part of my paper to get accepted into the various PhD programs was talking about how we learn kanji as a first language as opposed to a second language. And particularly, there's also phonetic writing in Japanese as well. So, so kanji is, is is a, a a picture word, if you will. It represents meaning. And sometimes it can have multiple meanings. Like I'll put up on the screen, uh, there's this word that has a pronunciation, and you know, the the kun reading of it is ashi, which means foot, and then there's also another meaning for it, which can be tairu, which means to be sufficient, but it's the same symbol, interestingly enough. Now, here's what's interesting as you translate that. So you'll notice there's the symbol, and now we have the secondary phonetic pronunciation of it. Japanese combines this phonetic alphabet along with the logographic writing. I believe it's called logographic. Well, I'll call them kanji. I know that's 100% sure, right?
1: <laughs>
0: but here's what's interesting. Check this out. So me as a, as, an, as a second language, right, I have learned to read words and read phonetic words in a sense in terms of how i spoke and how i eventually learned to to write read and write i learned japanese as a second language past my critical learning age here's what's really interesting as i noticed so there's like these like little modifiers that turns like a, a sound like ga a phonetic sound for ga into ka right so with or without that marker is is the determining factor for whether you pronounce it ga or whether you pronounce it ka Well, on on the English keyboard, you write G-A or K-A to respectively write each one of those phonetic sounds, right? But in Japanese, it's a single letter. Now, here's what's interesting. If I look it up statistically, um, English as a second language learners for Japanese will more likely make the mistake of typing ga or ka as a mistake when they meant to type the other, as opposed to native speakers who, who don't make that mistake when it comes to typing, that they'll more likely pick a letter around the keyboard. So like, you know, if I were typing for K, I might accidentally hit L or J. They'll make that type of mistake, but they won't mix up the G and the K as an example for how they type on their keyboard. And that has everything to do with how we've stored that information in yeah. our brains.
1: I would also add on to one thing that with our brain it connected is the way that we communicate is we're verbalizing it is that you also have the limitations as you said it changes and it is specific to different races as well, what you're able to actually do with your tongue and your larynx. So those play into a role because it's a very complex system. You're breathing. So, you're, you know, you're taking in oxygen and having to breathe while you talk as well. Your brain is trying to compulate things. Stuff is traveling at light speed. You're making sounds with your, your tongue and your larynx. It is very, very complex. So that is another thing that will be coming into play as well Is is your literal genetics of your body makeup.
0: So what I would say is in the story, where do we see representations of some of these things, right? So I I thought it's so interesting the way the story evolves, because he's constantly doing parallel storytelling, where either the aliens or the raising of the daughter, these scenes seem to mirror each other in a lot of different circumstances. So right as they're learning this language and talking, I think about the logographic writing, they have the daughter who is when she's 16, she's meeting the blind date. And they, ha- they have that secret code about talking about weather, right? Oh, the, the weather's going to be really hot tonight, right? And that's to be <laughs> signifying that the man, that the boy that she's going on the date with is very attractive.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Code words.
0: Well, and we see here's how language, where context matters in the same way that we talked about earlier with the Japanese kanji that could mean multiple different things depending on its surroundings. Here, the girl saying, It's going to be really hot tonight. We can see how the context around her is what matters in interpreting her statements.
1: Yeah, I love that. One thing that I found fascinating with the use of the the different uses of words or not their traditional meanings is one thing for that the heptapods that never is really discussed. And obviously it wasn't necessary, but it would be cool is did they have slang and would that change your time viewing abilities?
0: Yeah, probably. Yeah. I
1: would love to interview and ask him why he made some certain choices. Cause in a lot of movies, when you look at sci-fi communication with aliens, it's done through light or it's done through math. That's a real big one, right? Cause math is supposed to be a universal language. So I I find it interesting why he made the choices that he did. Okay,
0: so we've been talking a lot about the communication, the language side of things. Let's talk about time a little bit and maybe move into free will. What did you think about the usages of time with this writing and the circular representing all time and how all of a sudden once Louise learned to read heptapod language that she began to be able to see all time as well?
1: I think as Moni people have kind of put out this brings up the idea of fate and determinism where do we have a choice in the, the choices that we make are they really choices or are we all just going along this cosmic journey and whatever happens is predetermined to happen and even if it is and you could make different choices would you and probably not and I proposed the question to you, if you knew that your son was going to die at a certain age, would you still get married and have your child? Of course you would, because you'd want to still have those positive experiences. So is it really a choice? Yes and no at the same time. And that's quite the conundrum, I think.
0: Kind of brings us back to our boarding house discussion earlier, too, of maybe choices aren't really being presented to you. Um, one of the ways that I liked it was presented in the story— Which I think is interesting, too, is to push back on that a little bit, is we had the conversation with the daughter and the mother about how when she went out drinking, maybe just a little bit too much. And she said, oh, come on, mom. I know you did this, too. And the mom has the conversations of, well, my daughter isn't a cut and and paste image of me. Right, she's a combination of me and dad. She's a combination of me, dad, and the environment. She's going to be a victim of a lot of different variables, in a sense, too. That it's not just things are necessarily cyclical, but we are and we are objects of influence, if you will.
1: One influence I think we could discuss kind of in the time here is the aliens themselves, right? If they're giving this power, this knowledge to Louise. Are they evil because they're causing her suffering? Or is it an accident that they give her this knowledge and power?
0: Well, they cause her suffering prematurely, but she also now can experience all the time that she can also live at times when she can see the times when her daughter was alive and at the happiest moments of when they were hanging out as well, too. So, oof.
1: And they oh knew God. that they were going to give her that information too, because it had already happened. So they knew did they it have a choice? It is, yeah. Right. So did they have a choice in the matter?
0: Okay. So let's talk about algebra and physics in this as well, too, because I thought that was kind of interesting. <laughs> oh, because <please> no. <laughs> <laughs> not the
1: My, my worst subjects. <laughs> well, okay.
0: Let's 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 do it lightly in the sense of. I thought it was interesting where one of my favorite like tropes of sci-fi is when they create these universes they're like basically earthlings in space right with different environments but when you take what is ingrained in human beings base 10 math because we have 10 fingers it's interesting when you have heptapods which are seven limbed right And when they are base seven for how they they do their math, does that mean that some things are easier for them, such as calculus and stuff like that, as opposed to how it is for us? And that is kind of an interesting way to think that there are so many things that are built into us as we are in terms of human beings with, with 10 fingers being our base 10 math. What other things could be easier if we weren't so ingrained in the way that we do things?
1: Yeah, you could have some math proofs there that just change all of our aspect on numbers. And that would revolutionize everything. I mean, because everything in our world is based on ones and zeros from our computers to us as people to everything. I know personally, you know, when when you go buy something, uh, you know, you need that penny to round it up to zero or you're getting gas uh, or even in our Star Wars game, I'll go to sell something, and I have to get it down to zero or five. <laughs> I have to have it that way. It just programmed into us, mm-hmm.
0: right? Right. So I don't know. I I think the last thing that I would bring up is is all of these are interesting questions, right? And what I think is most interesting about this story, beyond the language, beyond all this time, beyond determinism and free will, you'll notice. What was the technology the aliens provided that allowed them to communicate? The linguistics. It was called the looking glass that allowed the oh. aliens to speak with the humans, which is clearly a reference to Lewis Carroll's looking glass, right? Which is a, a story about a young girl being sucked into this alternate world. She starts to see things differently. Her perspective changes. Alice in Wonderland, right? Yeah. Yeah. So is this story about us needing to look at ourselves, needing to look at everything we take for granted and realizing that we need to reevaluate some things in our lives in terms of what's important or what's just a standard way of thinking and what are our choices and what are our real ways of being and connecting with one another? This is just a really interesting story to allow me to reevaluate myself of how have I made decisions throughout my life and what is important to me.
1: You said this was going to be a very surface level, easy story, <laughs> not the super this philosophical. <laughs> Make me question my own being,
0: <laughs> dude. I've got plenty of other notes here about free will, determinism. I've got notes here about how do you change your desires, right? Which is oh, which is clearly you? which is a question that Luisa's presented here with the knowing what would happen to her daughter and her husband having a divorce. We've got lots of of religious symbols here with hepta. But being a representative of seven, but also being the heavenly number that these are, this is, you know, a divinely intervention, if you will, this is short stories written from an atheistic point of view, Ted Chang. Oh, boy, wait till I wrap up. I will tell you about the other stories.
1: I don't think this is going to be our last work that we read from Ted Chang, because he is an amazing author. And I definitely have enjoyed this ride.
0: Well, start telling me what your ratings are for this piece. There
1: is so much to this story. It is so amazingly written. It is so deep and complex that I just, I loved, loved, loved this story. So I'm going to give it an 8.5. If there
0: were different parallels of, you know, plot, I give this like a 10, you know, in terms of concept, 10. In terms of, you know, analytical value, that's very high up there. Like we said, there's tons of science, but with imagination applied to it. Now, when it comes to characters that's we're probably going down a little bit if we talk about if we talk about just prose which is a very subjective personal thing it's very flat for me that's much lower like a like a four or five for me on that that scale overall i'm probably going to give this an eight i think i i also am going to be tainted by having seen the movie right which is going to have a lot of different effects it's going to bring emotional resonance to this story that may or may not have been there before i read the story
1: Yeah, I think with seeing the movie first can always be detrimental or vice versa, reading the story and then seeing the movie can be detrimental because in the the movie, they try to keep that big plot twist to the end and he gives it away, what, like in the second sentence or something here? (laughs) Thank you for
0: joining us on the literature discussion today. What do you guys think about this story? What did you think about Ted Chang? Man, this story was really cool. I think you should consider it or at least watch the movie. I think, I think you can enjoy either one of them. I don't think you have to read one or the other personally. But if you're down for literature discussions like we had here today, please consider hitting the subscribe button. Una out.
1: Peace.